What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Happy Saturday. I hope everyone's having an amazing weekend so far. I had to jump on the mic to talk through a bunch of things that are happening in the world of sports and business right now. We're going to be talking about the French Open. Obviously, Nadal is not playing this year. It is a big miss, but the tournament is in full swing right now, and I want to talk about the business and money behind this event. Next, I want to talk about Monty Williams. He just signed a new contract that makes him the highest paid coach in NBA history, less than a month, just 18 days after being fired by the Phoenix Suns. I want to talk about where his contract puts him in the highest paid coaches in U.S. sports and what it means for the future of coaches in basketball. Then I want to talk about Shannon Sharp. Shannon Sharp has been all over the news for the past week. He's obviously stepping down and he has negotiated a buyout with FS1 to leave his debate show with Skip Bayless. But rather than talk about the details necessarily of the news, I want to talk about why he's leaving and potentially speculate on where he might be headed next. Then last but not least, I want to talk about taxpayers in Minnesota. There was a report out earlier this week that said the Minnesota Vikings, the NFL team, paid off hundreds of millions of dollars of debt early to save taxpayers in Minnesota hundreds of millions of dollars on interest. But that's not exactly what happened. It is misleading at best and just wrong at worst. The Minnesota Vikings did not pay off their debt. It was the state of Minnesota, and they are saving their own taxpayers' money. But rather than talk about that, I want to talk about how they did it, where the money came from, and what the future of this stadium might look like. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. As always, I ask only two things of you. One, if you're enjoying it, please share it with your friends. Ask them to subscribe to the podcast. And number two, please leave a review on the podcast feed, whether it's on Apple or Spotify, wherever you are listening to it. All right, let's get into today's episode. Okay, guys. So when I started reading through some of the research on the French Open and the business behind it and some of the stuff like that, I kept coming back to one thing, like the most dominant performances we've seen by athletes throughout sports history. I'm sure you can think of three, four, five, six of them right off the top of your head. I'm talking about athletes that just straight up dominated a period of time, a sport, an event, whatever it is. Think Michael Jordan's six NBA championships in the 1990s. Michael Phelps, the time he won eight gold medals at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. I don't think anyone will forget that. Floyd Mayweather, he obviously went 15-0 in professional boxing. Lionel Messi, he had a 91-goal season in 2012. The list goes on, right? Usain Bolt, Serena Williams had a long period of dominance. There's a bunch of different athletes we could name here. But I kept thinking about that because I don't think any of those athletes dominated one single event like Rafael Nadal. He's obviously the king of clay. That's his nickname. He won the French Open at Roland Garros a record 14 times right now after making his debut in 2005. And get this, his record at the French Open, 112 and three. That means he's only lost three times between the ages of 19 and 36 at the French Open. So from the age of 19 to 36, he lost three matches at the French Open. And he's won 112 of them. Absolutely insane. A huge level of dominance there. And... First and foremost, he's the only athlete ever I can imagine, I can think of at least, that has had a statue of themselves constructed outside of a sports venue while still competing in the event. There's literally a statue of him outside at the French Open today, and it's been there for a couple of years, so he's been competing at the event with a statue of himself outside of it. That's how dominant he's been. It's obviously really, really, really impressive what he's done there. But this year's French Open is going to look a little bit different. Nadal is injured and he won't be back until next year. And he has already said that could potentially be his last French Open ever. So I want to talk a little bit about the iconic tournament, including its history, its prize money, media rights, future, and more. And I think the most logical place to start is with an overview. For those that don't already know, the French Open was founded more than 130 years ago in 1891. 
It is the second Grand Slam on the tennis calendar each year. It's after the Australian Open, which leads the calendar. Then we have the French Open, then Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open closes out the tennis calendar each year. The tournament is commonly referred to as Roland Garros, named after a famous French aviator that became the first person to successfully cross the Mediterranean in 1913. And it's also considered by most to be the world's most physically demanding tennis tournament. This is primarily due to two reasons, high temperatures in Paris, why the event's going on, but also the clay surface. I have a quote here from David Dietz back in 2011 for Bleacher Report that breaks down really just how difficult it is to win this actual event. So I want to read it to you. He says, there is a reason that sports legends such as Pistol Pete Sampras, John McEnroe, and Venus Williams have never won in Paris. A booming serve and penetrating forehand will only carry a player so far on clay. At the French, one needs to have a complete repertoire of shots and skills because the red dust is the great equalizer. The surface is unique in that it slows down the pace of the ball, neutralizing the strength and power that has come to define the modern game. Instead, clay forces players to rely on patience, persistence, and guile. Artistry and consistency are rewarded over brawn and ability to hit winners. More importantly, it is the sport's ultimate test of fitness and endurance. With balls catching in the grid of the clay, thus bouncing higher and slower, points last longer than they do on hard courts. Serves have less pop and ground strokes less power, which translates into greater rallies and more physically demanding points. Players often spend double the amount of time on the court as they would for the same amount of points played at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. While Americans are at an inherent disadvantage because they are not accustomed to the slippery courts typical of Europe and South America, Roland Garros is the truest test in tennis, hoisting the Musketeers Cup, which is the trophy they give you if you win, after two weeks in Paris, is the most impressive accomplishment in sports. That's what he said. I don't necessarily know if I agree with that, but from an individual standpoint, it is obviously really, really, really difficult. And it's one of the main reasons why Rafael Nadal has commanded so much respect from people inside the tennis world, but also outside the tennis world for several decades now. Now, this level of difficulty has brought immense interest to the French Open. For example, Roland Garros typically sees upwards of 600,000 plus spectators across two weeks every single year, and it's estimated that they bring in more than $250 million in total revenue. And for context, if you were to break down that $250 million in total revenue, if you calculate based on interest on the last time they put out figures publicly, it's $256 million they're estimated to be making on an annual basis today. That's $18.2 million per day if you were to do it over two weeks. That's $761,000 per hour, and it's roughly $13,000 per minute over two weeks consecutively. Now, most of this money comes through media rights deals with NBC and others, and the tournament's growth has directly benefited its players in the form of prize money. So the men's French Open final between Rafael Nadal and Casper Ruud only averaged 1.5 million viewers on NBC last year, which, for context, is less than the average NBA game. But that's just in the U.S. The French Open pulls significantly more viewers outside of the United States. For example, Roland Garros says the French Open averaged 5.2 million viewers on France TV last year and reached over 100 million people via CCTV in China. The numbers are absolutely astronomical. I have a little infographic in the newsletter today that breaks down some of the numbers. Specifically, there was 308 million video views last year. The tournament did 1.4 billion impressions, which was up over 20% year over year. There was almost nearly 700,000 mentions of the Roland Garros Twitter handle. They gained 755,000 followers. There were 400 hours of radio listened to and 33 million views on TikTok. Obviously, the tournament generates an immense amount of interest, both on TV, but also on social media with the way the world is changing today. And 
look, Roland Garros, the truth is they want to reverse this trend from a viewership perspective. If you look at the tournaments of the past, the most popular tournament of the last decade was in 2014 when Nadal faced off against Djokovic. There was 2.5 million people in the United States watching on NBC. But since then, we haven't broken 2 million. It's actually trended downward. There's 1.9 in 2015, then 1.9, 1.5, 1.6, 1.7, 1.5, 1 1.8, and then 1.4 last year all the way up in 2022. So again, after consistently going over 2 million viewers average per year for the final men's on NBC, we haven't broken 2 million in uh, almost a decade, nine years at this point. The women's is in a similar spot. There was actually multiple years in a row in 2020 and 2021 that they didn't even break a million viewers on NBC for the final. Last year, they barely broke it. It was just over a million, 1.05 million viewers. But again, even with the average US viewership hovering between 1 million and 2 million for the men's and women's French Open finals, the player's total prize pool has still gone up. For example, the total prize pool for this year's French Open is 54.6 million. That's a 12.3% increase from 2022. And it means the men's and women's singles champion will walk away with $2.5 million each, and the runner-ups will take home just over $1 million. Now, if you get out, if you're kicked out of the tournament after round one, you're still making $17,000. So you're not going home empty-handed. Obviously, there's travel expenses, coaches, everything else that goes along with it. But if you make it to round two, $23,000, it goes up from there, $36,000. 74,000 for round one. Sorry, the, the first three rounds were qualifying. 74,000 is for round one at the actual tournament. 105,000 for round two. 154,000 for round three. 260,000 for round four. And it goes up, right? So if you make it to the semifinals, you're making over half a million dollars. Runner up 1.2. Winner again, $2.5 million. Now, outside of the business, I want to run through some of the, what we'll call like conversation starters. Things you guys can talk about with family and friends to make you seem a little bit smarter about the tournament, like you know some inside info. Number one. Roland Garros is famously known as the only Grand Slam played on clay courts. But did you know, the courts aren't actually made of clay. It's a combination of sand, volcanic rocks, topped with three inches of limestone, and red brick dust. And that's what gives it the clay effect. The tournament has 18 courts in total. The main court holds 15,000 people, while the other two stadium courts hold 10,000 and 5,000 people, respectively. A retractable roof was added to center court, the main court, in 2020. It has 22 panels that span 344 feet and can open and close in just 15 minutes. Obviously, that's necessary if there's rain and other stuff like that. So 15 minutes is quite a quick time, but that's where we're at in today's technology. One of the other things that's really interesting is if you look at the winners of all of the majors, Australian, French, Wimbledon, and US Open, over the last you know 20 years, it's been dominated by three people. I think you know tennis fans obviously know this, the big three, Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, and Novak Djokovic. They've won 65 of the last 80 Grand Slam men's singles. 65 of the last 80, but obviously with Federer retiring and Nadal hurt, Djokovic is the last remaining big three member in contention this year at Roland Garros. Now, this is going to be a fun tournament. I hope you guys enjoy it. I love watching this tournament, especially as we get to the later stages and you get really good matches. I wish Nadal was playing, but I hope he's able to get healthy and we can see him back here next year. And last but not least, I hope you guys enjoy the tournament because it's a lot of fun. I hope to be able to go at some point. I've heard it's one of the best experiences in sports to be able to go there for a couple of days and watch these athletes. For anyone that has played on clay or even in the heat knows that this is a very, very, very physically demanding thing. I remember my wife and I take tennis lessons sometimes and I always joke when we leave, I'm like, I have no idea how world-class tennis players do that for hours on end because it's just a lesson, right? You're moving around and you don't get much breaks and stuff like that, but I'm exhausted. I'm drenched by the time it's over. And obviously, these are world-class athletes that are used to it, but it is a physically demanding sport. It's a lot of fun to watch and play, and it's one of the, my favorite events of the year, quite frankly. 
All right, everyone, quick interruption from today's episode to talk about the sponsor of this podcast, ButcherBox. I've been ordering from ButcherBox for a few years now, and it's the single best solution I've found to save time while guaranteeing the quality of your food. Everyone probably knows what ButcherBox is, but they deliver 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, humanely raised pork, and wild-caught seafood directly to your doorstep. It's literally that easy, and it tastes incredible. So ditch the butcher lines today and guarantee the freshness of your meat with ButcherBox. And here's the best part. If you sign up today, ButcherBox is offering all of my listeners two pounds of ground beef for free every time they order over the next year. Let me say that again. Two pounds of ground beef every time you order over the next year you get for free. So go to butcherbox.com slash JoePomp and use code JoePomp, all caps, JoePomp at checkout to get that discount today. All right, the next topic I want to talk about is Monty Williams. So for those of you that don't know Monty Williams, he, he's been a player and a coach in the NBA. He was drafted many years ago. He was a first-round pick of the New York Knicks. He played in the NBA for five teams during a nine-year career. And then right after his career was over, he started coaching. He became an assistant for the Portland Trailblazers. I think he was there for four or five years. Then he went to the New Orleans Hornets at the time, now Pelicans. He spent a year with the Oklahoma City Thunder, was out of basketball for a couple of years after their coaching staff got fired. Then he spent one year with the 76ers as an assistant, and he was hired as the Phoenix Suns head coach in 2019. Now, anyone that follows basketball knows that the Phoenix Suns have been an absolute dumpster fire for years and years and years. They obviously had issues with ownership, a bunch of matters going on there, but even from a team perspective, the team just was not very good. So they hired Monty Williams, and he changed this team around. He changed his franchise around. Now, look, obviously, you have to have quality players. Devin Booker was a good player. DeAndre Aiden, they had a top draft pick. There's other players along the way that they have drafted or got as free agents and have made a huge difference. But Monty Williams deserves a lot of credit, too. I think, you know, you, you have to have someone to steer the ship. Obviously, coaches make a big, important difference when it comes to NBA teams and other sports across the world. So I give him a lot of credit. His record in there in Phoenix was 194 and 115, a 628 winning percentage in the regular season. He went 27 and 19 in the playoffs. He won Coach of the Year award. He reached the NBA Finals. And the easiest way to put it is he turned the Phoenix Suns from a laughing stock into a legitimate contender. But what happens? Matt Ishberg buys the team this past year. He spends a couple billion dollars to do that. He immediately comes in within 24 hours and trades for Kevin Durant. It was the biggest, like, I'm him move ever. He just said, hey, look, I've arrived. I bought this team, paid billions of dollars to do it. I want one of the best players in the world. I'm willing to mortgage our future to try to win now. We have Chris Paul, we have Devin Booker, now we're going to have Kevin Durant, some role players. We don't care what we give up in draft capital. And he made the move. And then what does he do? They lose, right? So they go all in on this postseason, basically. They don't give the team enough time to gel. Kevin Durant actually gets hurt in warmups right when he gets there. He misses a bunch of games. And again, the team just never really gelled. It was a lot of one-on-one -on -one basketball. And Monty Williams was put in a difficult position. But like most things, when a new person comes in, an owner of a team, he wants to hire his own people. He thinks he might be able to do things better. That's cool. That's his prerogative. That's fine. He ends up firing Monty Williams, even though the franchise won a record 64 games in 2021-2022 and reached the NBA Finals that year. Still, he gets fired. He had over $20 million left on his contract, so they got to buy him out, right? That's money they still owe him. So imagine that. You go fire a coach that just received an extension. I think it was one to two years ago. I want to say he was making like six, seven, or $8 million a year, and you have to pay him that money. So he was owed anywhere between $21 to $25 million. It was rumored and buyout. But it didn't last long because 18 days, literally 18 days, last month he was fired. 18 days later, he has been hired as the head coach of the Detroit Pistons. Now, the Detroit Pistons are another laughing stock of the NBA. They're not very good. They obviously have had some high draft picks. Cade Cunningham was there. He's one of their high draft picks, and they're hoping they can turn that team around. 
But now they bring in Monty Williams. And to give you context on just how big of a signing this is, Monty Williams signed a six-year, $78.5 million contract with the Detroit Pistons. That makes him the NBA's highest paid coach in history. In history. So not only did he just get fired, but he landed on his feet and upward because now he is the NBA's highest paid coach in history. That's a higher annual salary than all but two players on the Detroit Pistons, right? So if he was a player, he'd be their third highest paid player this year. He's a coach. That's different in the NBA. That's not traditionally how it has gone. Greg Popovich has been the highest paid coach in the NBA for many, 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 many years. But realistically, a lot of college football coaches, certainly NFL coaches, but also college football coaches get paid a lot more than NBA coaches. But the Monty Williams signing changes that. It makes him the fourth highest paid coach in U.S. sports. The only people that are earning more than him are Bill Belichick, who earns reportedly, according to Sportico, $20 million a year. Pete Carroll makes just under that about $15 million a year. Sean McVay makes $14 million a year with the LA Rams. Greg Popovich is essentially tied with Monty Williams at $13 million a year for number four or number five, however you want to count the tiebreaker. Mike Williams of the Steelers is right behind that, 12 and a half. Andy Reid, John Harbaugh, and then you get it in the college coaches, Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, Kirby Smart. So look, if you look at the top 10, every single one of them is a football coach, whether it's college football or NFL, except for two people now, Greg Popovich and Monty Williams. So I think there's a few different ways to look at this. One, Matt Ishbia and, and the Phoenix Suns got a huge discount on their new coach. They just hired Frank Vogel on Friday. He got a five-year, $31 million deal. So it's less than half of what Detroit is paying Monty Williams to be there. It was obviously less money than Monty Williams was getting in Phoenix himself. I don't think they're doing it to save money. Obviously, they think that Frank Vogel is a better coach. Otherwise, they wouldn't have fired Monty Williams. I don't think you buy a team for several billion dollars and come in and start pitching pennies around, you know, saving a, a couple million bucks here on a coach. So Frank Vogel, he's a good coach. Look, he, you know, he's a mastermind of the defense. He got a lot of credit for what he did with the Indiana Pacers back in the day when they had Paul George, Roy Hibbert, Lance Stevenson, all those guys. He put them into a, into a real contender. They were challenging LeBron in the playoffs every single year. Then he goes to the Lakers. He wins a championship there in the bubble. He's a great coach. I don't have necessarily a viewpoint on whether they should have fired Monty Williams or not. I've heard he's a great guy. I don't know from a coaching perspective. But at the end of the day, you can't tell me that other coaches around the NBA aren't seeing this deal and licking their chops. 100% they are. 1,000% they are. Because every time someone bumps the market up and up and up, the next coach is going to have to meet that, right? Imagine if Steve Kerr wanted to leave the Warriors. Someone would have to pay more than, than Monty Williams to get him, right? So it just brings the market up. It's really helpful to all the other coaches. And my guess is that Monty Williams really didn't want to go there, not because it's Detroit, not because of who it is. Maybe he wanted to take a year off. Who knows? There could be a a hundred different reasons as to why he didn't want to go coach the Detroit Pistons. But ultimately, they probably made him a deal he couldn't refuse, said, we're going to make you the highest paid coach in NBA history. You're going to be one of the top five highest paid coaches in all of U.S. sports. You're going to make more money than Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, Kirby Smart, John Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Mike Tomlin, all these guys. And of course, you're not going to turn that down if you're Monty Williams. You're going to go secure the bag and make enough money for you and your family's future. I don't blame him at all. And I am happy for him that he landed on his feet and was able to go get this deal done. All right. That leads me into my next topic, Shannon Sharp. So I'm sure most of you guys have seen what's happening with Shannon Sharp now. News broke from the New York Post earlier this week that Shannon Sharp was going to be ending his partnership with Skip Bayless on Fox Sports 1. So he's been running Undisputed. It's a debate show every day, Monday through Friday, with Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless on Fox Sports 1, FS1. Their final show is reportedly going to be after the 2023 NBA Finals conclude in June. And Sharp has reportedly reached a buyout with FS1 so he can leave. His podcast, Club Shay Shay, which has drawn big audiences, according to the New York Post, on social media and YouTube, will also be leaving Fox Sports. And there's a lot to discuss here, right? We've all seen it online. 
Shannon Sharp's out there liking tweets that call Skip Bayless a piece of shit. So I don't think there's anything that's going to surprise people when it comes to like the hate between these two people. We've seen it. We've literally seen this on TV. One of the first instances was after DeMar Hamlin's injury when the B- Buffalo Bills safety collapsed on the field during week 17 against the Bengals. Skip Bayless tweeted some essentially, you know, just stupid stuff. He was basically saying like, I have the quote here. No doubt the NFL is considering postponing the rest of this game. But how? This late in the season, a game of this magnitude is crucial to the regular season outcome, which suddenly seems so irrelevant. And look, if we if we zoom out a little bit and we're kind of months removed from this point, I actually don't think what Skip Bayless did was terrible. At the time, I was like, God damn, that is such a bad thing to say. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And it is to some degree, right? He should obviously be thinking about the player. DeMar Hamlin literally almost died. He did die, and he had to be revived on the field. That is the only worry in anyone's mind when this happens. I don't care about the game. The the football season could have ended there forever for the rest of the year, right? Like, I don't care. The player almost died. He did die to some degree. And you want to make sure that he's healthy and he's okay. So for that, I totally agree with Shannon Sharp. Skip Bayless shouldn't have tweeted it. But I also don't think Skip Bayless was trying to be malicious by it. I don't think he was trying to say, I don't care about Tamar Hamlin. He literally said it seems so irrelevant. But he was just saying, you know, when you look at this in context of what's happening with the season, it's really difficult to just cancel this game because if you're not going to be able to replay it with how many weeks were left in the year, it was very important for seeding in the playoffs. And we saw that, right? Like the teams weren't happy with what the NFL ultimately decided to do. But again, I don't necessarily have an opinion one way or the other. I thought at the time that it was egregious. He shouldn't have done it. I still think that he probably shouldn't have tweeted it. But I also would step back and tell everyone, look, take it for what it's worth. I don't think he was saying, you know, I don't care about Tamar Hamlin. I think he was actually saying the opposite. I care about Tamar Hamlin, but the NFL aspect of that. We can argue till our faces are blue whether that was the right thing to tweet or not. But the, the the point is still true. Shannon Sharp did not like it. He he didn't like it enough to where he didn't show up to work the next day. So that happened on Sunday night. The next morning on Undisputed Monday morning, he didn't show up. He stayed home. And everyone was like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. That's weird. That's weird. And, you know, Fox came out and said, oh, he's sick, whatever. They made up some excuse. Turned out he wasn't sick at all. He, um, he literally was just mad at Skip Bayless. He wanted him to take the tweet down. He said no. He shows up. I think it was the next day on Tuesday. And he talked about it publicly on the show. He said, what I think you did was wrong. And they started going at it again. Skip Bayless was interrupting him and they got in all these arguments. So I don't need to hash out every single argument that they've been through, but this has happened numerous times. Just look up clips of this. It's, it's you know, Skip Bayless diminishing his NFL career, even though Shannon Sharp's a three-time Super Bowl winner and Hall of Fame player. He's saying that he wasn't good. Tom Brady was better than him. Like, no shit, dude. Tom Brady is one of the best players. He is the best player of all time. He's the GOAT, right? So that's not really an insult, especially to someone who's in the Hall of Fame and has won Super Bowls. But that's neither here nor there. Shannon Sharp now wants to leave FS1. He's negotiated a buyout of his contract. He was reportedly making about $6 million a year compared to Skip Bayless, who's making about $12 million a year. And my take on this is pretty simple. Whether you hate Skip Bayless or you love Skip Bayless, you cannot deny that he's essentially the godfather of the debate shows. He's right up there with Stephen A. Smith. They're 1A and 1B when it comes to who runs the debate scene on TV. He's one of the OGs that left ESPN went to Fox. He, he did the same as Colin Coward, right? These guys left the network and were told by everyone in sports media, young, old, whoever it was, that they could not succeed without the distribution and the reach of ESPN. And social media changed all of that, right? Now your audience can kind of transport with you a little bit. And I'm not saying that these guys are, are the most popular people in the world, that everyone loves them. That's not the case, right? Some people hate them, but it all adds up to their popularity in general, right? Like if you look at Skip Bayless, he's one of the most popular hosts in the world, sports or non-sports. And that can't be disregarded. And I think what's happened here, which I've heard other people talk about too, is Shannon Sharp has become very, very, very popular over the last few years. When he started on this show, 
2016, he was clearly the second fiddle to Skip Bayless. Skip Bayless was making way more money. He was deciding on the topics of the show, all of that. Shannon Sharp was second fiddle, irregardless of his NFL career or anything like that. But the times have changed. Skip Bayless is now not necessarily the most popular person on the show. Shannon Sharp has a huge, huge, huge audience on social media. He's beloved by a lot of fans. A lot of athletes love him. He has a really close relationship with LeBron James, who Skip Bayless routinely makes fun of on the show and, and has historically hated forever. So I don't necessarily see why people would be confused about this. They've been arguing on TV. They clearly don't like each other. He's liking tweets that are calling Skip Bayless a piece of shit. It's obvious that they were going to be splitting up at some point. Now it's coming. To me, the bigger question is like, where does he go from here? Because there's two parts. Skip Bayless, for one, is going to, in my opinion, have a hard time finding a host. I don't want to say hard time, actually, because you're going to be able to find someone. Someone's going to take up that show. It gets you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of viewers, depending on how you want to count it on linear television, social media, et cetera. It gets a lot of attention. You're going to be paid well. You're going to be paid seven figures to do the job, depending on who you are. And you're going to get a lot of recognition and airtime. Not only that, but Skip Bayless is also 71 years old. People forget this. He's 71 years old, and he's not slowing down. He could do this for another five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, but he's 71 years old. And you could also see him retiring in two to three years, right? When he's 74, 75 years old, maybe he wants to retire and go do something else. I don't know, but he's 71 years old. You're going to be able to find someone because even if they're not a star, they're not Shannon Sharp's level, you'll be able to bring them up like you did with Shannon Sharp. And ultimately, they could have the chance to, one, take over the show or provide that backstop that lets kind of Skip Bayless control everything that he wants to do, right? Like I said before, he's reportedly picking everything from topics. You can't tweet about him. He controls everything, right? Everything at FS1 goes through him from a debate perspective because he's the OG. He ran the show. He's the head in charge. It's the same reason why Stephen A. Smith is an executive producer of First Take. These are what the top people demand. Every single question that's asked on the show goes through them. They approve all of it. That's the kind of control that they want, and it's the kind of control that they demand to be in these positions on top of a $12, $14, 15000000 million salary, depending on the top of the market now. So I think... You know, the show will be fine. Skip Ellis isn't going anywhere. He's going to stay there. They'll find someone eventually to host alongside him. I don't think it will be nearly as big of a name as Shannon Sharp because of the person that you have to go up against, right? No one that has as big of an audience as Shannon Sharp is going to go in there and get disrespected by Skip Bayless anymore. I don't see that happening. But more importantly, what I think is interesting is what Shannon Sharp does. He obviously probably has his pick of different networks that he could go to, ESPN, anyone else, right? Like he can go do ultimately what he wants to do depending on the role and kind of what he wants from a payment perspective or a compensation perspective. But he also has a pretty popular podcast, which I think is interesting because there's this weird dynamic going on now where the people that run their own independent media organizations want access to infrastructure and the people that have that infrastructure want to go do the opposite, Right. If you think about Pat McAfee, he is now going to ESPN where, you know, there's reports out there. No one really knows exactly how much money he's making. There's been reports of 15, 16, 17 million dollars a year, whatever. Say it's 25 million dollars a year, whatever. You could argue that there's more upside financially if he stays on his own. But that also brings a bunch of headaches, everything from salaries for your employees to production to expenses for travel, whatever it is. Right. He has his own office space, all these different things, the infrastructure of that show is not easy to do on a daily basis. And as the sole owner of that business, you're in charge of all of this, right? Your head is never clear. He, this guy probably wakes up three, four, five different times throughout the night, right? Like thinking about everything, everything you could possibly think of. And now he's going to ESPN where they'll reportedly handle a lot of that stuff. It loosens his load. He just wants to show up, do the show, hang out with his boys, make a shit ton of money, right? He's going to be making millions of dollars even after taxes, tens of millions of dollars every single year. He's going to spend more time with his family at home. He's going to have a great time. It's all things considered probably a really good move for him, but he's doing the opposite approach. 
And now we've seen people like Shannon Sharp, where it wouldn't surprise me if he said, look, I have this podcast called Club Shay Shay. It's one of the top sports podcasts in the world. I don't know where it is right now, but it's usually in the top 25 to 50 sports podcasts in the United States. So it wouldn't surprise me if he starts going to do that full time. Like if you look at JJ Redick, I think JJ Redick has mastered this. He has his own production company and he has his own podcast that's really popular. Again, it's in the top 10, 15, 20 shows on Apple Podcasts and Spotify every single day. Millions and millions of people are watching and listening to this thing. And what does he do? He uses ESPN's distribution for leverage against his podcast network. So he goes on first take. He does these clips that go viral. He does the intro to the show. He partners with Stephen A. Smith. He's in the building. And what does that do? It builds the equity that he has, the equity value, enterprise value that he has in his own business. So I think that's going to become a lot more common. And if you look at Pat McAfee, he's kind of basically doing the same thing because he's going to own 100% of the business. He's basically just licensing out the show to ESPN. So he's going to be able to use their distribution to grow the show. And ultimately, if he wanted to leave, his show would be bigger than it ever was because of the distribution that ESPN gave him. He's going to be on every bar, every office, every TV in residential areas throughout the country. You know, there's millions and millions of people that are going to be watching him every single day. And I think he's doing a very similar playbook, although his business might be bigger than JJ Reddick's. Now, I think Shannon Sharp could do something very similar too. And that's why I wanted to talk about this is he has 1.2 million subscribers on YouTube. His clips, he's, he's posting four to five, six different clips every single day. I assume he has a team of people that are working on this. There's no way you can churn out that much stuff with just one to two employees. It's top 20, top 25 in the world right now. And I think, you know, personally, he could probably easily make five, six million bucks on this thing alone. Now, part of the announcement on the New York Post was saying that the Club Shay Shay podcast will also be leaving Fox Sports, which I thought was interesting because you never know how some of these deals work, right? Like who owns the IP? Who gets to take the show? Was that part of the buyout? Did he have to buy the show back, right? I could see it going a number of different ways. We've seen it where JJ Reddick's, again, a good example. When he left The Ringer, it was reportedly because Bill Simmons didn't want to give him the IP to the show. We've seen this with Barstool Sports. We've seen it with a bunch of other networks, podcast networks, is that they want to own the IP to the show because that's ultimately what makes it valuable. And it hamstrings the guest from leaving, right? The host from leaving. So if you built this huge distribution feed on an RSS feed in your podcast, and you have hundreds of thousands of people that are just subscribed to your podcast and listening to it every single day, it's really freaking difficult to go start something from scratch. So you hamstring to them the contract into the business by owning the IP. So maybe Club Shay Shay was owned by Fox Sports. I'm not entirely sure. There's not any information publicly available on that. But maybe that was also part of the buyout where he said, look, I'll, I'll give up one, two, three million bucks, whatever it ends up being to buy back my podcast. That's what I want to go do. Maybe I'll go work with a different network or do some kind of like complimentary things to complement the show. I could totally see that happening. And I actually think that would be a really smart move because ultimately, if he's getting paid $6 million a year at Fox Sports, like he says he is, or like the reports say he is, he can make more than that. He absolutely, absolutely could make more than that by doing, you know, sideshows, whether it's with ESPN or whatever it is, something temporary, and then expanding his broadcast and his media empire. You know, maybe he does the show more than once a week. Maybe he does other shows off of that. Maybe he opens up a newsletter. Maybe he starts getting more active on social media on video stuff. Maybe he opens up his own production company, right? There's a million different things that he could do. But he's at the point now where, one, he has enough cash to make this stuff happen. He can go hire the right people to do it. And then, two, his audience is so big where they're going to follow him wherever it is. It's not like I said before with ESPN or Fox Sports. On social media, that's your audience. That's your audience. The algorithm can change. You can shut down. You can lose your account. You can get barred, whatever it is. But today, his audience is his audience. He can transport them other places. He can get them to go follow a show. They're loyal to him. They'll follow him. He doesn't need the network anymore. And I think ultimately that might be what we see him do. Again, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not saying that he's not going to go to ESPN or any of these other places. My guess is that he ends up doing some of that. He ends up getting a job somewhere else to where he's doing similar stuff. 
but he's also probably going to take a step back and not do it 100% full time. And my guess is that he does some of this on his own and he feels some of that entrepreneurial spirit, but we'll see what happens. All right. The next thing I want to talk about today is the Minnesota Vikings. There were a couple of reports out earlier this week claiming that the Minnesota Vikings paid off $377 million in outstanding stadium bonds for their U.S. Bank Stadium, and that was going to save Minnesota taxpayers $226 million in interest. And everyone, all the shows picked it up, all the newspapers picked it up, all the websites, whatever. Everyone picked it up and was applauding the Minnesota Vikings, saying this is awesome, this never happens, good for them, looking out for the citizens, W, all that stuff. But it's not true. That's not what happened at all, really. The Minnesota Vikings didn't pay off any debt. The state of Minnesota and the government in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, paid off debt. So the way the original deal worked was that it was a $1.1 billion stadium to build. This was early in the in, in like the 2010 era, right? 2012, 2013, around there. And they came to an agreement where 55% of that $1.1 billion was going to be funded by private uses, right? The Minnesota Vikings, but also other private investors that were interested in the project. Then the remaining 45% was going to be done by the public. And that's 45% was split between two people, the state and the city. The state was going to pay 70% and the city was going to pay 30%. So primarily, uh, it was done privately, right? Part of it, 55%. And it was lauded as this saying, oh, look, it's great. They're working together, the public and the private. They're all essentially splitting it down the middle, but the privates are paying a little bit more. So the way this happened was the state legalized these things called electronic pull tabs to do it. And the easiest way to think about it, I've never actually played one, but it's like getting, if you go to a bar in Minnesota, you can go and you can get it like a tablet and it's essentially slots. So you bring it to your table, you can drink a beer and you can play these games and they're casino games, essentially they're, you're gambling and they implemented them, made them legal in 2012. And the idea was that they would use this to pay for the stadium and the stadium opened. It cost $1.1 billion, opened in 2016. It hosted the Super Bowl, Final Four, Taylor Swift concerts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's reports now that they got to make all these updates. It's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. But by all things considered, really nice stadium. A lot of people loved it, whatever. But the revenue from these e-tabs has exploded. It started off initially a little bit slow. It wasn't making as much money as the government thought. And now it's exploded. They're making $6 million per day, per day on these electronic tab, pull tab machines, supposedly. And so what does Minnesota decide to do? They decide to take this extra money that goes into a pot, right? So they take the money that goes from these e-tabs and they put it into a pot and then they take that revenue and it was used to pay off the debt on the stadium. Now this pot has gotten so big where they can literally just pay off the debt. They can just pay off the debt. The, the debt was due in 2046. So they're going to be paying it off, call it 23 years early. And it's going to be saving Minnesota taxpayers $226 million in interest. Like I said, the team's not paying anything off. The team isn't paying this money. It's the government that's doing it. And they're doing it through their, their electronic pull tab machines that they implemented in 2012. But there's also something that's interesting happening here, why I think they're doing it now. Because the revenue might be dropping from these ETAB machines relatively soon. So one of the things that I was reading up on last week was that the tribal gaming agreements in Minnesota stipulate certain forms of gaming or gambling that can be used. And they have the right, the tribal gaming committees, to slot machines. It's their right. But the difference with e-tabs is subtle, right? And it's so subtle that a lot of people don't even know. Like I just said in the intro to this topic, it's basically a slot machine. It's like a tablet and it's essentially a slot machine. So this year's tax bill in Minnesota is going to draw that line a little bit more clearly. There's going to be consequences, kind of like what happens if they're not able to do that. But ultimately what they're trying to do is they're going to make the games a little bit less attractive how to play, right? They're going to change some things of how much money you can win, the way that you can win it, et cetera, on these electronic pull tab machines. And they think that it's going to set back the revenue. They think at some degree, the government is saying that it could significantly impact the $120 million a year that they give away to charities. 
So again, they're making $6 million plus per day on these electronic pull tab machines at each bar. And they give away $120 million annually. They raise enough money out of the last few years to put this in a pot to now pay off debt that wasn't due for another 23 years. And they're worried that that some of that money might go away. Now, we don't know if that's actually going to go away. Time will tell. They honestly didn't think that it was going to go this well and they were going to be making this much money off of it. But obviously, there's there's greater forces at work here between the tribal gaming agreements and whatnot that have a little bit to say with this. But my point is simple. The Minnesota Vikings did not pay off any debt. The team itself did not go out and, and put hundreds of millions of dollars towards debt. It was the government that did it. It was because of the electronic pull tab machines. They accelerated the ability to repay some of this debt because they were making more money than they ever believed. They're making $6 million per day, and it is loading, loading the government's coffers there. They're making so much money, they don't even know what to do with it. So much money that they just decided to pay off debt 23 years early and save taxpayers $226 million in interest. And you know it's, it's quite a spin, right? By saying saving the taxpayers $226 million, half the stadium was paid for by taxpayers, right? And if you live in Minnesota, you don't give a crap about the football team, you're paying for that. And if you're gambling, that's your money that's going towards the stadium and your other tax money is going towards the stadium. So I think it's kind of like a weird way to put it, but ultimately you guys get the point. Minnesota, the government is paying off early. This isn't something that we traditionally see. It's not something where governments are able to do initially, right? They don't always have hundreds of millions of dollars left over in their funds to just go pay off debt. But credit to Minnesota, they got the money on their balance sheet and they're doing the right thing with it rather than going to spend it on some other project or whatever it is. They're going to do the right thing. All right, last but not least, I want to end today's episode by just talking about three to four different things. We'll call these, you know, extra credit, conversation starters, it's essentially a collection of things you might have missed this week that I thought were interesting. First up, LSU football. They partner with this company called Tiger Air. And essentially what they've done is they've installed air conditioning in their helmets for the football team. So they're like these mini fans that have batteries. The batteries last like five hours at a time and they last for four years. So you charge them up, the helmet, it lasts for about five hours. It pumps AC in. It's essentially just a fan. So it's pumping air into it, but cools it down a little bit. And the battery itself lasts for five years or four years. So it's really cool. It's not something that's super expensive either. I think it was like they have one model that's $85 per helmet. And then they have one that's like $180 per helmet. So again, this isn't something that only LSU can do because they have such a big football budget. Teams across the country could do this if they really wanted to, depending on how many people you have on your team and what your athletic budget looks like. But I thought it was interesting. You know, some people are going to call them soft. Some people are saying that's SEC football for you, whatever you want to call it. But LSU has air conditioning in their helmets this year. I thought it was cool. Very interesting. Number two, Wrexham, AFC, the team that's owned by Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney. You guys know the story by now. They bought this club for $2.5 million. They recently got promoted this year. Big, 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 big story. And to celebrate the club's promotion, they brought the entire team out to Las Vegas. They flew them over and they partied with them for several days. And the, the team's goalkeeper, Ben Foster, was recently on a podcast that I tweeted about. And he essentially broke down the trip. He was like, it was amazing. We got to the airport. We land. We go straight to the hotel. They put us up in these suites. No one paid for a damn thing. We shower. We go to dinner. We go to the club. He said when they walked into the club, the music in the club stopped. They started playing Wrexham's theme song. <laughs> and then highlights of the club. Paul Mullen's goals and everything started playing on the screens throughout the club. He estimates that Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney spent at least, at least, he said, a minimum of $500,000 on the weekend for them. And he was obviously very grateful for that. So cool story. Awesome what Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney are doing. I'm hoping that we can see like a little Luton Town kind of story out of them where they make it up to the Premier League, whether it takes five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever. It would be one of the coolest stories in sports and it would make them very financially successful as well. 
two other things. One, Real Madrid, Forbes came out with their list of the world's most valuable football clubs. Real Madrid was number one. They're worth just over $6 billion, $6.07 billion. The rest of the list, number two, was Manchester United, $6 billion. Barcelona, three, $5.5 billion. Liverpool, $5.29 billion. Manchester United was number five, just under $5 billion, $4.99 billion. But the rest of the list, it went to top 30 teams. Seven MLS clubs were in the top 30, which I thought was interesting, 23% of the list. But as you guys know, MLS is a completely different story at this point. They don't have relegation. They don't have that structure at all. They have salary caps, all this kind of stuff. So most of it's actually an expansion of real estate play right now. But it's cool to see that there's seven teams. Soccer is obviously becoming more important in the United States and the sport is growing, especially the World Cup coming. So expect to see more of those teams make the list in the future. Because if you think outside of the Premier League, you know, there's six, seven, eight teams that probably aren't going to get promoted on any given year, but the other teams all face relegation. And with that comes a drastic reduction in revenue. And you can't properly value these assets without knowing exactly where you're going to be. So I think that's one interesting thing to keep an eye on is how many MLS teams eventually climb into this top 30. My guess is eventually every team might be in there, right? You have obviously the big clubs, Real Madrid, Barcelona, all the big six in uh, the Premier League. But a lot of these clubs are going to be fulfilled by MLS spots in the future just as this league continues to grow. All right, last but not least, NBA Finals. We talked about this the other day and the altitude. The altitude, I think, had might have had an impact last night. Obviously, the Denver Nuggets put a whooping on the Miami Heat. I am, of course, rooting for the Miami Heat because I live in Miami now. But ultimately, I think Denver might be too good to beat. Their winning percentage at home is 0.652 versus 350 away. It's the biggest gap in winning percentage at home versus away in NBA history. And one of the other things I thought was funny was they make it known. They tell you right away. It's at the free throw line, 5,280 feet, just to let you know kind of how high above you are above sea level. It's really funny how they try to get in your head. It's in the locker room. It's on the court. It's everywhere. And then one of the other things I thought that was interesting about the finals, I thought everyone knew this by now, but some people were tweeting about it, so I thought I might mention it, is if you look on the court during the finals games in the lower corners, the top corner on the left side and the bottom corner on the right side where the broadcast is facing, they have these electronic ads, like virtual ads. Those are not on the court. People in attendance, the players can't see those. That court spot is empty, and they're projected on there through the television for advertising purposes. They rotate throughout the game, so it looked like last night it was doing one per quarter, so you know, Coinbase was one, YouTube TV was another, and so forth. There was a couple different advertisers. But it looked like each team was getting a quarter. Maybe at some point they'll rotate them. But they've been doing this for several years now. I want to say it might have started in the bubble, but don't hold me to that. I know they did it in the bubble, but it may have started before that. And there's an interesting story about like, you know, the uniforms, the cream color uniforms for the Bucks. that's why they don't wear them anymore, is because it messes with the images. For some reason, the color that they are, it messes with the sponsorships on the court. So this has been going on for several years now. Many people have written about this. This isn't necessarily groundbreaking news, but I think it's interesting. And it's one of those things when you're watching the game, you can point to other people and be like, hey, did you know this? So I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. And last but not least, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I love doing this stuff for you guys. It's so much fun. I love the business and money behind sports. It's something that I would do on my own time, regardless whether I was getting paid for it or not. So at the end of the day, again, I ask two things from all of you. Please share this podcast with your friends. Help me help you by growing it. We're going to be able to get some better guests on the show. My goal is eventually to make it part solo podcast where I break down the most interesting topics. But then I want the second half of the show sometimes to be interviews, right? Where I bring in other people and get their opinion, their their analysis, their story on different things. Because I think that ultimately is where the true value lies in this podcast. So let's do it together. Let's build this show. Subscribe to the feed on Apple or Spotify or Google or wherever you're listening to it. And please leave a review. That helps in the podcast charts as well. So go rate it, whatever you want. I'm hoping obviously for five stars, but you guys do what you want and uh, we will talk on Monday. I hope everyone has an amazing weekend and uh, I'll talk to you guys in a few days here.